Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today we have a really special treat because we have with us Krista Vitola, who is a senior editor at Books of Young Readers, which is part of Simon & Schuster. We're very excited. Okay, so Krista, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled. And I'm glad I was able to sleep last night because I was so excited. <laughs> okay, first of all, we're going to jump a little bit. I usually like to start with how do you get into this and all that sort of stuff. But let's just ask the real question. What's the difference between a senior editor and a regular editor, senior executive editor? Because we see that all the time. So does that mean something different as far as acquiring books? Or is that just more of like what the company deals with? Or what is that? So basically, it's how long you've been with a company and a promotion of sorts. So there is a very lengthy ladder that you climb within publishing, starting out as an editorial assistant and an assistant editor, and then an associate editor, and then an editor, and then a senior editor, and then an executive editor. And then sometimes there's senior executive editors and then editorial directors. It really depends on the publishing house and the specific imprint that you work for. But there is definitely a range of editors. But what it basically shares with agents and authors and those within the industry is how long you've been with the company and how long you've been in the industry as a whole as well as, as you were saying, when you're able to acquire. And that really does change between houses as well. When I had first started at Random House before I moved over to Simon & Schuster, as an editorial assistant and an assistant editor, you weren't able to acquire. You were really getting your feet wet. You were learning about how to acquire, how to edit books, how to do the whole processes, and you weren't taking in submissions and reading. You were basically reading for your boss to see if there was something that came in through their inbox that the imprint would want to acquire. But at Simon & Schuster, sometimes an assistant editor, an associate editor is able to acquire their own books if the publisher feels that they are ready to do so. It does vary, but it's um, it's a title. It's nice. It's the, you know, longer you've been in the industry and you get new titles that it's always a nice recognition for the time that you spent and the books that you've published. But in general, I have to say that we're all editors and we all want to find beautiful books to bring out into the world. So we uh, all have, have the same goal. Wow, yeah. Is there also that, let's say, I don't, I don't know what level would be, any sort of level editor that would have some sort of, I don't know if the right word is editorial oversight or just some sort of running the team meeting for other editors of kind of making sure that whatever the imprint is, whatever the vision of the imprint is, so is that also related to that, or is that somebody else's job who does that? Yes. Well, the publisher oversees all of the editors and kind of has the final say, and then above mm-hmm. him would be the president of the company. But the editorial directors and executive editors, they manage a majority of the staff, and they, too, are the ones cultivating the list and the liaison between an agency meeting, if it's a broader agency meeting, or bringing in individuals who may be publishing books from different sectors of the world and in different forms of media. So there are certain editors who have been in publishing for, yes, that have more of a managerial role than a typical editor who may have one assistant. Oh, right. That's the word, managerial role. Yes. Thank you. There we go. The editor is helping the writer. Very good. So now let's go back to this. How did you get into all this? Was being an editor something you always set out to do? Is it kind of something that you fell into? Uh, It was something I fell into. I always wanted to write for a magazine. I've always wanted to work for a magazine. I wanted to be as cliche as this is, but be Sarah Jessica Parker from Sex and the City and (laughs) write, have my own column. The beautiful apartment in the shoes would have been a nice added touch (laughs) to that life. (laughs) 
But I always thought that magazines would be where I would land. And when I was in college, I had interned for a magazine and it was kind of the B-list entertainment weekly magazine, I like to say. It was a great place that people were great. I had a great experience. It was a true like intern experience where we did everything and anything that no one else wanted to do. But in doing so, I did learn the ropes, but it wasn't the type of environment that I wanted to be a part of. I mm-hmm. just didn't match with my personality. So the next year when I was still in school, I had interned for Carol Fitzgerald, who runs the Book Report Network. She does teen reads and kids reads and also does a lot of author websites. And she really showed me the possibilities of and the world of children's publishing. I wrote reviews for her, children's book reviews. And I could not believe that it was someone's job to read manuscripts and help authors make them even better. Before they went out into the world, I thought an author just wrote a book and it was bound and then it was just stuck on the shelf. That was how it was published. So it was like a aha moment. The band was cheering in my head that this was something that I could actually do as a living. And yeah, and so I looked at other internships. I worked for some literary agencies. And then I interviewed at Random House at Delacour Press, one of my initial interviews mm-hmm. out of school. And I got very, very lucky and was offered a position with Delacourt under Wendy Loja. Oh, and we spoke to her. She's, oh, she's yes. the best. Yes. So I I worked with her and Krista Marino and Beverly Horowitz over at Delacourt. And really, they showed me the ropes. And I'm ever so thankful for my time there before I popped on over to Simon & Schuster. Well, were you specifically focused on working with children's books or young readers' books at that point, or you were kind of open to any point of publishing? I had hoped I would be able to go into children's books. I was offered another position to do adult romance at the same time as I was offered a job at Random House, but I really, really love children's mm-hmm. books. There are so many books, as I think all of us in children's publishing, that have really shaped and molded us, and we still have in our bookshelves to this day and writing children's reviews just really struck a chord with me and I hoped that I could stay in the children's book world and I got lucky enough to do so yeah well and then did you willingly make the transition from wanting to be a writer to being an editor or do you still have that writer part in you somewhere that you're like one day we might revisit it you know I think it was a lofty dream because Ah. I am a (laughs) terrible writer I am so much better at reading someone else's work and having the ability to know where to like pare back something or expand on something or Uh shift things around. I applaud authors. I have no idea how you do it. Writing a paragraph is lengthy enough for me. So yeah, it's something that I am happy to leave to those in more capable hands and I I do not think I will dabble in writing. You know, being an editor, it's a pretty good thing too. So yeah. I get the good part. I get the end result. Yeah. So actually speaking about that, when books are first coming in, whatever you're looking for, which maybe we could also describe a little bit of that, how much of that is according to what you personally want to look for and how much of that is, this is what the imprint is. So even though I might want to be looking at other things, I kind of have to keep my focus here because of the imprint. I have been really lucky in that when I moved over from Random House to to Simon & Schuster, I was able to acquire the books that I really wanted to acquire and that I love and that fit the imprint really well. So it's kind of like a match made in heaven. I feel very fortunate that I can honestly say that the books that I read constantly, you know, for fun or for acquisition are ones that I can bring into the imprint, that the imprint wants and needs, and it's very nice. So... Luckily, my taste isn't in in line with books for young readers, so I don't have to worry about that. I will, too, say that I did a 
a lot of teen series, big contemporary dystopian fantasy series when I was over at Delaport, which I enjoyed doing. And I learned so much and that I worked on the Fallen series and repackaging a sisterhood of the traveling pants and the maze runner. And when I moved over to Simon and Schuster, I had wanted to focus on middle grade and they had needed more middle grade on their list. And so about 90% of my list, I'm sure as people have seen and is online, and so is middle grade. And I have some really special teen as well, but my heart is in middle grade. I love teen, but I really, really, there's something very special about middle grade. I kind of run the gamut in what I acquire, but I try to live in that world for as much as uh, my time as I can. Do you have any specific way to describe like what you think is so special about middle grade or is it just there's something there that speaks to you? There's something about that age range of the you are not under your parents' thumb as much. Right. You're asking questions, these honest and real and raw questions about the world and life and friendships and there's so much going on and changing and you have that space, that autonomy that you're not really at the, you know, the other end, that teen autonomy, but it's definitely changed from what you've experienced when you were perhaps in elementary school. And there's just something so special about that. You can't really put your finger on, but those big picture questions are there. And I really think it makes a middle grade narrative sing. And, you know, I hated middle school. Sometimes I wonder why I wanted to stay in this category, but there is something truly special about that age range and and stories that speak to that age range. Yeah, my co-host for my regular episodes, she's more into middle grade and I'm more into YA, but mm-hmm. because of this, I've gotten more into middle grade and there really is something, especially the middle grade that's really done well. It's just so exciting to read it. It's just there's something so... Speaking of, I think I saw you edit or you have edited or worked with Stuart Gibbs with a Spy School series. I do work with Stu. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. Spy School series was one of the first middle grade that I started like, okay, let's try this. Let's try this. And I think the first book, it's just, he like nailed it. He like got that kind of tone of just, okay, it's a little bit suspension of belief to, to portray the adults as being so ridiculous, but it's still, I don't know, he, he got something so, and the fact that this kid just keeps somehow ending up in the middle of things, even though he's not the greatest spy and he keeps needing like Erica to save his, it's just... That spy school is just, it's a lot of fun. Yes, I agree. Um, It's always a joy editing Sue's books. And I have found that many of my middle grade authors have children within that age range. And so they really live and breathe and experience the everyday emotions and thoughts and antics of a middle schooler. (laughs) Yeah. When you first acquire the book, because especially his book, I had thought that the series was going to end at a certain point, and then all of a sudden I saw that there were more books coming out. We are growing and growing. Yeah, So, but when you first acquire it, is your thought of, okay, you know, I like the first book, I'm going to take the first book, well, maybe there's serious potential, or you take the first book in like, okay, we want a minimum of X amount of books, then according to how it sells, we might expand it to more. Like, how does that part of that work? It really depends on the author. So for Sue, I was not his acquiring editor. The first Spy School book came out, I believe, in 2010, and I was not even at Simon & Schuster yet. His acquiring editor now actually works for the CIA, which is very cool. (laughs) So fitting. But he's had a few editors. I started working with Stu last year, I believe, or the year before. But when it was first acquired, I'm almost certain that it was acquired as a standalone. But... Everyone just really saw its potential to be a series and to follow Ben because Ben is such an awesome character through many years and many more adventures. And Stu, having come from a screenwriting background, just has such a wealth of knowledge and about it on adventures and, you know, things to come. And I, he really has built up this just epic journey for Ben and his classmates. 
and he has a lot in his tool belt to keep writing more and more books. So it was really nice to be able to continue. And I think when there's a character that you love and you wish to grow with, it's always our hope as publishers to keep a series going. But series are hard. It's always finding that balance. Yeah, well, because also that it starts off as a middle grade, and let's say if there's not... Okay, so I'll give like a more specific example. I once spoke to an author. She wrote the story about like a seventh grade fixer or something. So she had her first book out, and then she got an option for a second book. So the second book she wrote about the eighth grade. And then she got an option for another book, and then she's like, wait, if I start writing any more of this, I'm going to take the kid out of middle school, and then it's not yeah. the middle school anymore, right? So, I don't know, is that like rules for that? Because I know, okay, I wrote, you know, Harry Potter. Harry Potter kind of went from middle grade to young adult. But it seems like spy school is staying in the middle grade. They're not moving out of that. Yeah, and you know what? That is the predicament that a lot of series face. For those who've read many a spy school book, it takes place over the course of a few weeks. And then the next book starts off just um, a month or so later. So he's done a really nice job of compacting the series. But he is out of middle school now. But because spy school is similar to Hogwarts, that the Academy kind of spans middle and high school. He's still in the Academy of Espionage, and we can get away with it in that way. But Harry Potter is really an exception to the rule, as Stu has done here. It's rare to see. Right. Is it also, part of it's just, if it would move to a different age demographic, are you also, your editor is not necessarily, they might have to move out of their own comfort area if they're not necessarily, you know, a young adult person, or is it just because you might lose your readers, or is it all of that kind of stuff? It's all of it. It's you're aging out of your category and it won't be shelved in the same place for retailers because uh -oh. middle grade and teen are in different spots. Yes. You know, the branding of do now that he's taken over the, the middle grade spectrum. So, and that's where he lives. So yeah, it's a, it's a few different things, but I think what's been so exciting to see with Stu and with more and more books is that those questions and those relationships have been growing, but at the heart of the books, they're still perfect for that middle grade reader which we always want to stay true to to keep it in this category yeah because it's also i mean especially if the first one's out in 2010 those first readers are older now they're adults yes. now so i mean i'm buying the spy school books but at the same time like you're saying it's the whole marketing of it's different everything about it would be different to change that yeah that, that's an interesting thing oh okay another author that i saw that you work with was if i saw correctly was Cassie Gustafson. yes we spoke to cassie i spoke to cassie a few months ago before her book came out She's so great. Yes, she's incredible. She's, I love my all my authors dearly. She's an incredible person. Because her book goes, she has um, some text, and then she has that like superhero alter ego. So when the book came to you, was this like, okay, this is what I want to do, and you're like, well, I got to see if this works, or it's just like, yes, I love all this. Let's make all this happen. Or yeah, what does that look like? Yes. So I actually was did not acquire Cassie's book after the ink dries. Um, okay. That was Lisa Abrams who is now over at Random House. I inherited Cassie when Lisa left Simon & Schuster. So I got to see the finished product of After the Ink Drives, which is incredible and beautiful. I just acquired Cassie's next YA, which is coming out in the fall of 22, called The Secrets We Keep. So I have been working out with her on that novel. I cannot provide insight onto the acquisition of After the Ink Dries, oh, okay. um, which I'm so happy that Lisa did buy it because it is another incredible story from her. And she's so talented. But as a finished product, I love the book. <laughs>
Just asking quickly, the secret to keep is also going to be a, is it along the same lines as after the ink dries or should, or should you go in a different direction with it? As far as um, the content. Yeah. And also the, um, the genre. Yes. It will be another teen novel that focuses on sexual assault. This more specifically incest. Oh. Cassie, she writes these stories that are for survivors and for those who don't realize that there are support systems and people that love them and want to help them and who may be in similar situations. And she grants them a voice and a mirror window to those facing similar situations. So I feel so honored to be able to bring this book out into the world with her. Like after the ink dries, it's, it's a really difficult subject. So what she has done with After the Interest in the graphic novel components is there are these dark fairy tales that are woven throughout our main character's story, kind of adding another layer, but a respite for the reader too, with, uh, what is going on in the present day. But I don't want to give too much away because I don't know if Cassie's spoken about this at length, even though it was announced. I don't want to steal yeah. thunder. Yeah, I, I saw uh, the announcement for it. It was like, oh, like it's the first yeah. book you've been and we're already acquiring another one. That's so exciting. So that's actually just as an interesting one or two line you know, answer for that because acquiring such heavy topics for teens, people want to speak about it. They want to know that it's that if someone needs the support system, they should have it. But at the same time, it is really heavy stuff. So I don't want to use the word rules or any sort of you know understanding of how much in depth you can go into certain things, mentioning it versus getting graphic about it or just any of that sort of stuff or just every editor kind of making their own decision that if you call a YA, then it gets to be YA. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, I, I think it depends on every editor. I also think it depends on the age range. So right between middle grade and teen. Fighting Words is tackles a similar topic, and that's middle grade. It's Kimberly Browbaker, the war that saved my life author. And I apologize to her because I'm forgetting her last name. So because she's a middle grade and it's a middle grade book, there are different, obviously, the way in which it is portrayed and the narrative is crafted is different than how Cassie's novel will be just due to it being middle grade versus teen. It's Kimberly Brubaker Bradley, the author on that one. But I think with Cassie's novel in particular, she really wanted it to be a story of hope and a story of friendship and sisterhood and one that while dark also provided in life there are so many different layers and you know aspects and while there are dark moments there's also happy moments and hopeful moments and and she wanted to call out those relationships and moments too. It's sort of the unwritten rule for teens it seems that even however dark your topic gets you always should include hope or at least end on a note of hope versus adult fiction you could just crush everyone and leave them crushed. <laughs> right. Yeah, we also spoke to Rebecca Lowell. She's writing a book. Her book's coming out, I think, next year. It's also, it's for middle grade, and it's about domestic abuse. So, yeah, well, okay, I don't know if you can answer this question, but I'm curious about this. Have you ever been part of an imprint or at a place where an editor acquires a book, and you're like, really? That's the book you're going to acquire? Because sometimes, even though I guess everything's subjective, because sometimes you read a book that there might be a lot of hype about, and you're just like, yeah, I don't think the writing's so great. I don't think it's so great, but someone else loves it so much. But I don't know, have you ever been with that in an imprint that you worked with where you're like, well, okay, whatever, I trust your judgment? <laughs> I think that's one of my favorite aspects of publishing okay. is that when an editor is reading something for acquisition or, you know, reading something for fun is that taste really does vary. And that's what's so special, I think, about publishing is that you will find your audience and you will find the right audience and you will find your audience that loves your story. And you know what? Right. Writing is subjective. Not everyone is going to love everything that you write or many things you write, but 
There are others that will wait in line for hours to get your autograph and send you fan mail. So everyone has their own specific taste and quirks and, and likes and dislikes. And I think that's what makes us all unique and awesome. And even if I don't like something, I, I'm happy that it found its right home. And that's like the best part about books and reading and finding that audience for your book. Yeah. So not yeah. everyone likes everything. Yeah. For sure. Okay, we'll have one more question before we wrap up. Because you mentioned about they worked with repackaging. Is all that based on just, oh, this book is selling really well, let's re-release it? Or what is the consideration when they decide to, you know, 10-year anniversary of this particular book? Right, that, that's all considered the same sort of thing, right? So how do they decide which book's going to get the re-release? Because sometimes it's not necessarily ones that have, like, you know, the highest ratings or the highest whatevers. But is, it, is, is that based on sales numbers or just, like, enough fans clamor for it? What's the consideration for those things? There's a lot of factors. So, one, it could be that the hardcover didn't sell as well as we had hoped and we found that the cover may have not hit the mark and we want to repackage it when it becomes a paperback edition. So there's that. It could be that the book is now going to be a movie or a you know Netflix series or something equally as awesome and the publisher decides to take the movie poster I should say but for you know for TV really it's not the same cover and put that on the hardcover or the paperback jacket. It could be that it's celebrating an anniversary and we want to make it like a gifty special edition kind of thing that could warrant a new cover. Those are the biggest off the top of my head ones that I could think of why I would get a new cover and a repackage. Because I thought not all books necessarily make it from hardcover to paperback. So, you know, if the hardcover is not selling well, is it just because we believe in the book so much we want to make give it another chance with the paperback? Or is that built into the contract originally that, that you decide that or it's just whatever the team decides? Yeah, so it, it does. It really depends on the house. Sometimes if there isn't a high enough first print run for the paperback, some publishing houses may decide not to publish it because monetarily it might not be worth it for them. Other houses, it automatically goes into paperback. I don't know. Personally, I think that it has another life in paperback and it finds a different audience in paperback, which is equally as exciting. Yeah. And I would hate to stunt its a book's legs. And at Simon & Schuster, majority of our hardcovers automatically go into paperback, and they do. They find a new audience or perhaps a boxed mailing or, you know, a book club or something else that at a, the price point as, as it was for the hardcovers, they couldn't afford it. But in its paperback price point, they can. So yeah, there are a lot of yeah opportunities for it in paperback. Yeah. I've actually seen, I don't think it happens too often, but there's sometimes like if it's a, tr like, you know, a trilogy or something, sometimes the third book gets stuck in hardcover and it like never comes out in paperback. Is that like a thing? Is it just because like the interest is lost in the series or something or it doesn't seem to happen too often? That's interesting. In my years in publishing, I have not come across that huh. yet. It's important to talk about the repackaged covers because even though sometimes the cover is nicer and even though we understand that there's a business behind it, but sometimes it ruins the look on our shelves. So that's why we always have to speak about it. No, but on the publisher's end, there is a very specific and beneficial reason for why we right. choose to <laughs> And even sometimes just going from hardcover to paperback, sometimes the paperback cover is just a thousand times cooler. So I understand, but it's still annoying. Okay, so let's do our fill in the blank of, I love it when writers, illustrators, fellow editors, publishers, stories, series, whatever, do X, and I really don't like it when they do X. So choosing any one of those to fill in the blank for that, please. How would you do that? So I guess for I love it when, I love when books make me cry. I love yeah. a good cry. I am, at heart, I'm a very emotional person, and oh. so it doesn't take much for me to cry, <laughs> but no one wants to be upset about something, but there is something very 
I am so attached to my work and the authors that I work with that many of them make me cry without even trying to. Well, so well, that is something that gets me. <laughs> like happy cry, sad cry, or it doesn't matter. It's just all as long as you... Yeah, all okay. <laughs> and then what we say, I really don't like, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, so I really don't like when authors compare themselves to other authors. Oh, that's actually a very good one. Because every author and every author's journey is so unique. Yes. And I think it never ends well. Comparing yourself to another person in life. It doesn't even have to do with publishing in life. We're all on our own unique journeys and we should appreciate it and live in it and enjoy it. And that the other authors that we may be in critique groups with or just emerging publishing groups with, they should have their own journey too. And comparing yourself to another person's journey is never helpful. That That's an excellent... Yeah, when I was first starting as a writer, I spoke to Max Lennis, the screenwriter. We were kind of messaging and he's just like, yes, every writer has their own journey. I'm like, well, that's not helpful to me. <laughs> that doesn't get me published today. But it's now I'm like, yeah, it's so true what he said. And like, yeah, and you're saying it now also. It's like, yes, it's exactly very good. I like that one. Very good. We're not going to cry from it, but that's, that, that touches the heart. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, well, Krista, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been such a treat to speak with you. Of course. Thank you. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring senior editor Krista Matola. To find out more about Krista and see what she's up to, check her out using the link below. To find out more about Oh My Word podcast and all the great stuff we're up to, please check us out on Instagram at Oh My Word podcast. Subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts or check us out at el10mm.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.